The following podcast contains explicit language, by which we mean potty talk. It's Thursday, March 8th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It was just announced that Jon Favreau will direct a new series based on Star Wars. My first reaction might have been like yours. He's definitely going to cast Tommy Vitor as a Bothan spy. I can see Lovett as a Jawa type. Yes, not that John Favreau. That was a podcasting deep cut. I'm talking about the director, John Favreau, the director of Made and Swingers and Iron Man and Iron Man 2 and the executive director of the Avengers. So this does seem to add up to quite a resume that would make him a natural fit for Star Wars. You know, a man who has made film studios tons of money helming pop culture hero tales, right? But not to everyone, as Twitter put it, in announcing this as a moment, bask in the moment, John, headline why people are upset about John Favreau's new Star Wars series. They know nothing about the series except that John Favreau's doing it. I will read from some of their disappointment. This is the description. While fewer doubting Favreau's abilities, a lot of people are disappointed that another straight white male will oversee a Star Wars project. But when you get right down to it, wasn't Swingers essentially a Star Wars project, a fresh-faced innocent, a roguish buccaneer, the beautiful princess, or the beautiful babies. I went back to check out the original Swingers trailer, and I was proven correct. It's all in there. Mike Peter's career led him from New York to Hollywood, leaving behind his college sweetheart. Who is she? She's beautiful. Now he's trying to get back in the game. Hi, uh, how you ladies doing this evening? What do you drive? You've never heard of the Millennium Falcon? Excuse me? What kind of a car do you drive? It's a ship that made the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. He's getting some help from some out there friends. The fuck are you carrying a gun for? What, in case somebody steps to you, Snoop Dogg? Hokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side, kid. And introducing Vince Vaughn as the roguish smuggler, Trent. Maybe she wants to party. She wants to. But I was going into Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. Baby, this is what we came here for. Now, we met a beautiful baby and she likes you. It just isn't fair. Oh, big this ride. I'm never going to get out of here. Whatever. Daddy's going to get her to bring a friend. Now, I don't care if I end up with her or one of her beautiful baby friends. Well, take care of yourself, hon. I guess that's what you're best at, isn't it? Swing Wars. It's so money, and it doesn't even know it. So fucking money. That was like the Jedi mind shit. On the show, I spiel about all the violations of law that the Trump administration is getting into that uh, I'm a little upset with, but I don't really even know existed. But first, it is the longest-running play on Broadway. It's been on for a year tomorrow. The name of the play is The Play That Goes Wrong. Here's my interview with the executive producer that goes, oh, so right. You never change it. The Play That Goes Wrong is the longest-running play on Broadway. Now, that doesn't say that it's the longest, well-run play on Broadway or competently run or that it's anything other than a catastrophe wrapped up in apocalypse surrounded by bacon. Well, that's the point of The Play That Goes Wrong. The title didn't tell you things go wrong. The conceit of the play is it's a murder mystery. 
and then the props start falling off the wall, and then the walls start falling off the wall, and then maybe things catch on fire. Kevin McCollum is the producer of this play that's on Broadway, which is a combination of slapstick and just unbelievably inventive sets, and they keep finding ways to make you laugh that you didn't know you had within you. Hello, Kevin. Thanks for coming on. It's great to be here, and thank you <laughs> for describing my show as a total disaster. The It's a total disaster, and... Though the word I use to evangelize about this, because I think a lot of New Yorkers especially have seen the ads and they get the idea. It's right there in the title. It's a play that goes wrong, (laughs) but inventive because there is a really marvelous intellectual aspect to it where if you take a step back and you say to yourself, my God, how did they think of that and how did they execute that? Just in terms of thinking of all the things that can go wrong. Well, I think what makes this show universal, first of all, it's the first show that I've actually produced, maybe since Rent, that says exactly what it is. Right. <laughs> the idea is that is that it's against all odds. We got to finish the play. You understand it's this theater troupe. They're not always succeeding, and but they're just happy to be here tonight, and tonight's going to be different. And of course, why is this night different than any other night? The wonderful thing about this show is you think you know what it is. And like, okay, I get it. It's slapstick. I've seen it. But when was the last time you were in a theater and the physical comedy was front and center? And I don't – we are all thirsty for something we haven't had for a long time. You know, in the 50s and and especially early 50s television and also the theater used to be a place. Burlesque had a ton of slapstick, vaudeville. But there are generations – you know, I'm 55 years old. I've really never seen this kind of physical humor on stage. So it's about a different time that we can uh, finally a comedy that's just not about what's going on in our in our political and our world uh, politics today. Well, the way comedy works best is that you have such high stakes and there's such a drive and against that drive, you know, set against that immovable wall, you could bounce all sorts of balls or anything off that wall. But you need that drive. You need the through line where the the people involved have this absolute quest. And all the great comedies have that, whether it is to get out of Groundhog's Day or to get away from the mob and some like it hot. And in this play, putting on the play successfully... Is where a challenge. Any, right, where any normal human being would say, okay, now that all the walls have basically fallen down or all the props have fallen on my head or I'm trapped inside a grandfather clock, someone would say, guys, we have to take a break. Is there a doctor in the house? But of course, that could never be said in the play that goes wrong. One of the other things about our show, there's the people doing the show and there's the people backstage. Yeah. In the original company, everyone's British, backstage and front stage. But now with an American cast, why can't the crew be the American crew? So now we have another level of mm-hmm. culture clash in the play that goes wrong that they've never really had in the show uh, originally in Britain. And we are, I think, American audiences are delighting and also the fact that the uh, fish out of water for the Brits being in the United States, putting on a show with the crew that's American and having to deal with all yes. the aspects of the show. So if this were written by Americans, what would be the play? What would be the genre of play that goes wrong? Uh <laughs> If it wasn't a murder the mystery. Senate. The uh, Senate, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it would be. Um, that's a very good question. You know, they have another one. Just going to tell you about it because uh, I'm looking to bring this in the future, too. I'd like to have a whole Broadway Goes Wrong uh, yeah. uh, trilogy like Star Wars. And speaking of my, my producer uh, partner on it, J.J. Uh, Abrams, who is my producing partner on the play that goes wrong, they have another one called uh, Peter Pan Goes Wrong. 
what's interesting about that one, Americans know the plot points Mm -hmm. on Peter Pan Mm -hmm. a little bit more because it's part of our, you know, it's part of our culture too. And that is a very, very interesting show because we know exactly what the plot is, right? where we don't in this one. So uh, if America did a goes wrong thing, I guess it would be, I mean, I, I would imagine that's what the Marx Brothers were. Because they were always trying to, you know, get the girl or get that. And then because they were four individuals, someone was always messing up, you know, yeah. uh, Groucho's plans. So I, I think it's the, the best prototype to this is, is the Marx Brothers Live. We mentioned all the physical comedy. There's also verbal comedy, including the idea that these are actors, there is a script, and so you play in a lot of ways with what happens when an actor gets off script or a different actor has to take up the script, the fact that they're playing scripted material. And at some point, it becomes Ionesco or Uh Brechtian material, where they're forefronting the fact that this is a theatrical experience. And I'm sitting there laughing. And for a second, I come out of my laughter and say, you know, this is exactly experimental theater with just a couple of more details filled in so as to not lose the audience. That's exactly what's going on at some point. I think that's that's the magic of the show. Whatever you studied in college or whatever attracts you to the theater or film or entertainment or comedy, you can bring your own sort of tape in your head of what you think it is and apply it to this. Because the Mischief Theater Company were, you know, three guys who went to school together who studied theater from Shakespeare to UNESCO to classics. And I think it's all of that. Yeah. It's also, there's a lot of very early 50s television involved. A lot of, lot of Monty Python. The absurdity of getting off one line and having to try to communicate just because you're not aware that a line was skipped. And so you're just, you know what your next line is. That's sort of learning a play by rote. So it is the longest running play. And that's for a lot of reasons. Play meaning non-musical. But is it not the case that Broadway plays have fallen into this habit of booking really huge stars who are available for only a few months and never really intending to have a long run? I think I, I sense that we've given up on the idea, hey, let's put a play on Broadway and see how long it can run. Plays have always had a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> but what's happened lately is it's really about economics. Oftentimes with American playwrights, uh, their agents who are great and their lawyers like, this is how much it is. There's no differentiation. This is, this is what we need. And I've often argued, that's great, but that means I need to put Hugh Jackman in the play that goes wrong if you have me do that deal. Yeah. If, if you give me this deal, I can bring everybody and I can help launch a lot of new careers. And I do believe that, uh, I, in fact, I know we need big stars to view plays because television has gotten so good, so good. And people can watch The Crown and they can watch, you know, whatever their favorite shows are. And there's a lot of great writing. And we need more writers to Broadway because we should have more plays on Broadway and we should have more theaters on Broadway. We need 60 theaters. Yeah. The problem is we have 41 because of the real estate. And, and that's nobody's fault except we live in a very real estate driven community called New York City. And Broadway was invented here over 100 years ago. Yeah. And we're lucky there's still theaters because, you know, there's a lot of people who would like to turn them into another Victoria's Secret, which yeah. we just don't need. And by the way, Off-Broadway these days is not any less expensive in terms of real estate than Broadway. Where's is- Off-Broadway? The West Village? That, <laughs> that costs more than 43rd Street. <laughs> I, I, I think Off-Broadway nowadays is closer to Nebraska. Um, <laughs> but I will say that uh, there's a lot of good people and, and a lot of smart people trying to, trying to change the paradigm. I think the play that goes wrong is the beginning. Any night around the world... There's at least 10 
play that goes wrong running. So there is a, a universal theme, whether you're, you know, German, Russian, South Korean, Australian, American, or British, you want to see people trying to get through their day in something called the play that goes wrong. Is the play that goes wrong, is the play within the play that goes wrong always the murder at Haversham Manor? It is. But we all know, because of what I said about Peter Pan, we yeah. could apply that to other. And the Peter Pan actually has more sentiment because it's more about never wanting to grow up. So there's a whole nother level of storytelling within that one. Right. They've been very clever. It's, it's in partnership with Kenny Wax and Mark Bentley in London and J.J. and I. So we have mentioned J.J. Abrams is... A producer, yes. you're a producer. How yes. does that work? Producer can mean a lot of things. and He's much more important than me, is did, how it works. <laughs> well, you didn't reboot Star Wars, right? No, no. So did he see it and say, I got to bring this to Broadway yeah. and then find you? Did you know him beforehand? How it, did it work? We both uh, saw it independently of each other. Of course, I had known who he was, and he had no idea who I was, I'm <laughs> sure. And uh, uh, we have a, a friend who also is his agent, who is a dear friend of mine, called me and said, I know you're going to see it. I know, you know, JJ just saw it. He really loves it. He he's, you know, loves theater, grew up going to Broadway like you did. And uh, would you be interested in talking to him? I said, sure. So we got together and we both realized we had a lot in common and we could work together well. And um, we said, okay, let's partner it with uh, Mark and Kenny. And the, that's what we did. The points, the erudite points that you're making to me about the universalism of this, I mean, he deals with that all the time. Have you ever had explicit conversations like that with him about this show? We've talked a lot about why it works and structural storytelling and, and man versus man and man versus yeah. planetary. And, and you're like, it's, this guy, this guy Abrams yeah. gets it. Yeah, no, he <laughs> he gets it. No, we've definitely uh, talked about also that this is such an antidote to also the big budget hydraulic and also filmic. We can do anything on film. I just think it's one of those shows that also we're not selling tickets two at a time. You can come with the grandkids, the mom, the grandmother, and the strange uncle. You all can come to the theater together. <laughs> and there's no one has to worry about being offended. If you have no strange uncle, a strange uncle will be provided. We rent them at the theater. Yeah, actually, yeah. you can. There's it's like, like the, the opera glasses. It's like the, the headset. You know, yeah. you can, and you he can have needs a strange, hearing aid, so you have to rent him one. The strange yeah. uncle with the hearty laugh. <laughs> Kevin McCollum is the producer of the play that goes wrong now and forever at the Lyceum Theater to yes. rip off cats. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and and bring your cat. You can as long as you buy a ticket. Yeah, you can bring strange, your cat. And you're strange cat's uncle. Right. I'll be a cat's uncle. <laughs> Kevin McCollum, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And now the spiel. The Hatch Act. The Logan Act. Emoluments. I would like to thank the Trump administration for this ongoing, indeed never-ending, civics lessons in laws and acts that we thought would be left in the past 100 or 200 years. Now, as far as uh, emoluments, I'm glad it's in the Constitution. Didn't know we'd need it. Apparently, we do. As far as the Logan Act, this is the idea that we should have one president at a time. If the Flynn part of the Mueller investigation only results in Logan Act prosecutions, I'd be a little unsatisfied. Yes, I know they seem to have violated the spirit of the law, and the Logan Act has a fine spirit, but, you know, I'm glad it's on the books. What it does is it takes a norm and codifies it. But then there's the Hatch Act, and the Hatch Act is in the news because Kellyanne Conway is found to have violated it when she endorsed Roy Moore over Doug Jones in the Alabama Senate race. Wait, you're saying, what is so weird about a White House advisor obviously saying 
that people should vote for the preferred candidate of the White House. Well, it's how explicit it was. Kellyanne Conway is allowed to make points about political races, make general arguments about the direction the country should go, characterize the president's view on political matters and where he thinks the country should go. But because of the Hatch Act, she is not to say and therefore vote for Roy Moore. Because of decency and conscience, she shouldn't say it, but it was literally against the law for her to have said it. Now, here's how ignorant I was about the Hatch Act. I thought the Hatch was Orrin Hatch. No, 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 no. It's Carl Hatch. He was a New Mexico senator, and the Hatch Act was written mainly not to shut up presidential advisors. In fact, FDR was up in arms about that, and Senator Hatch assured him, don't worry, I'll have carve-outs for the president and the vice president. It actually addressed a problem that was going on, which was that the Works Progress Administration, you know, the WPA that put a lot of unemployed to work, was uh, a source of patronage. So what Hatch wanted to do was to make clear that these uh, federal employees should not be politicking as a part of getting contracts from the WPA. Fine. Then he extended the idea to, and oh, by the way, members of the administration should not endorse certain politicians. Like I said, there was some back and forth. And according to a history of the Hatch Act that I never thought I would read, FDR allies thought that the Hatch Act would weaken the Democratic Party because, you know, patronage was a part of it. Congressman Frank Hook of Michigan asserted that the Hatch Act would lead to, quote, a lack of interest in government. Well, I guess he was right, but not because of the Hatch Act. The deal with Kellyanne having violated the Hatch Act is it's kind of ridiculous. Any citizen is allowed to have opinions. In fact, not only are they allowed to have an opinion, you're not allowed to deny them the right to opinions. That is the First Amendment. So as Noah Feldman, who is a uh, Harvard professor who is writing for Bloomberg View argues the rule Kellyanne Conway broke should be unconstitutional. Whether it should be unconstitutional or not, the enforcement of it should be pretty toothless. And you know what it is? This is not a violation of criminal law. This is a slap on the wrist. Members of past administrations like Julian Castro during the Obama administration got similarly slapped on the wrists. I do not want to hear from Kellyanne Conway that this is just another example of too many legislations or government running amok. Professionals in politics know what the rules are and they know how to go up to the line and not cross it. And if nothing else, what Trump has done is gleefully, willfully, joyously, haphazardly cross the line. I'm not sure he knows where it is, but you would expect Kellyanne Conway, a seasoned political veteran, to know it. Politicians in the White House have followed the rule. And now this politician, the senior advisor to the president, chooses not to follow the rule. This certainly won't be the end of the republic, but it shows the kind of sloppiness and indiscretion that has come to characterize this cabal of 'er ne'er-do-wells. And the problem isn't that this violation of the Hatch Act is symbolic of the greater rot in the administration. The problem is that the greater rot is so all-encompassing that it's hard to even notice the Hatch Act being violated. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who, as an alternative to a straight white male directing Star Wars, recommends a Twi'lek, originally referred to as Relothians. They're tall humanoid species whose most striking feature is a pair of long tentacles protruding from their skull. Mary Wilson is the senior producer of The Gist. If she were to pick a former White House speechwriter to helm a Star Wars project, she'd have gone with David Frum. Of course, he would never do it. He's a never greedo. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. What's that title mean? 
He's the hut behind the hut behind the hut. The gist coming up with another mashup of a Star Wars Favreau project. Episode three, Revenge of the Chef. Umpuru Depuru Dupuru, and thanks for listening.